Welcome to the History of the World podcast. My name is Chris. This is episode 20, Megaliths part 2. Last week we talked about the emergence of megalithic construction. We talked about the astonishing site of Gobekli Tepe in modern Turkey and how significant it was, especially in terms of its age at around 11,000 years old. This told us that megalithic construction emerged at a similar time and location to agriculture sedentary lifestyles, metalworking and the construction of permanent villages where great numbers of people would coexist. All of these aspects appeared to spread into the European continent from the Fertile Crescent with each other, so it could be seen as a new and successful way of living which supplanted earlier societies. Megalithic culture spread throughout the Mediterranean lands of Europe and from around 5000 BCE spread northwards as far as the British Isles. We can see this with the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Stonehenge, Avebury and associated sites which we briefly discussed during the last podcast. In 2017, over 1.5 million people visited the megalithic structure of Stonehenge in the county of Wiltshire in the modern country of England. The monument is instantly recognisable. Large standing stones and in some cases having another large stone connecting them by resting along the top of two of the standing stones. However, as much as this is the Stonehenge that we recognise today, there is so much more to the site than these stones. To find out more, we need to go all the way back to 3100 BCE. During the last podcast, we introduced some of the prehistoric wonders of Wiltshire when we spoke of West Kennet Longbarrow, Silbury Hill, Windmill Hill and Avebury. In 3100 BCE, Windmill Hill and West Kennet Longbarrow existed. Silbury Hill had not yet been built and it is possible that the Henge of Avebury was not there but we cannot be completely sure. Let us focus on Stonehenge and see what it can teach us about megalithic cultures. Stonehenge There appears to be no doubt that humans were very active in and around the area of Avebury and Stonehenge for most of the 4th and 3rd millenniums BCE. There are various evidences of earthworks, woodworks and stoneworks that appear to date back to this period. 
The first evidence of construction around the Stonehenge site is believed to be in or around 3100 BCE and it is not the stones that we can see today because they were erected many hundreds of years later. Around 30 miles south of the Neolithic constructions near Avebury at what would later be Stonehenge, a circular ditch was dug into the earth with the resulting chalk that was used to form a bank alongside the ditch. Henges are known to have the ditch inside the bank, but in Stonehenge's case, the bank is inside the ditch, leading to one of the most famous fascinating facts about Stonehenge not being a true henge. It is true, however, that human bones were buried at the site as well as the bones of deer and oxen. It also doesn't appear that these bones were just buried, suggesting that some of the bones were in some way looked after. If you recall, the burials at West Kennet Long Barrow were also allowed to be accessed, suggesting that this is not just a standard burial, or not just a burial carried out in a standard fashion. It is not until around 600 years later that we start seeing the emergence of the famous stoneworks that we know of today at the site. The very first stones thought to have been erected at the Stonehenge site are the blue stones. What we actually mean by the term blue stone is not that the stones were blue, but that they were not the later and more iconic and famous sarsen stones that we instantly recognise due to their balancing tricks. The blue stones are the ones which scientists talk about as the ones transported to the site from many, many miles away. So let us clarify this for all of you who are confused by what we are describing at this stage. Sometime during the first half of the 3rd millennium BCE, it is believed that a ring of comparatively small blue stones were erected at Stonehenge. These are the stones that many claim were brought over from the modern country of Wales, also on the island of Great Britain, as this seems to be the nearest feasible natural quarry for the stones. If they did come from Wales, then they would have had to have been transported between 150 and 200 miles. Some scientists have suggested that glacial activity could be responsible. If you remember back in episode 8 of the podcast where we discussed the ice ages, we described how expanded glaciers had the power to transport huge stones from one place to another, leaving the rock in an unusual place on the landscape. However, many scholars do not believe that the blue stones were transported this way and prefer to believe that humans transported the stones across the land themselves. Now, each stone would have weighed several tonnes, but we must not forget the power of human resource, because if we go back in time over 5,000 years, then we believe that humans had successfully, physically moved and erected the stones at Gobekli Tepe in modern Turkey, 
and those stones were significantly more massive. Now there are even those that challenge the theory that the stones were transported from Wales to Wiltshire, stating that none of the sites in Wales where the blue stones could have come from show any signs of prehistoric quarrying. So this could be true. However, there has been yet another study published in 2018 that tells us some very important information about some of the cremated individuals exhumed at Stonehenge. Strontium isotope analysis of these bones suggests that some of the individuals may have originated from modern Welsh lands, demonstrating a connection between the origin of the cremated individuals and the origin of the blue stones. What we don't have is categorical evidence of where the blue stones came from and how they were transported, but it is a popular theory to suppose that many humans found a way to drag them all the way from Wales over to Wiltshire to construct a monument at Stonehenge. It may be that these blue stones could have been part of an earlier monument, as some scientists have suggested that they were quarried a few hundred years before becoming part of the Stonehenge monument. Trilithans. Now, when we talk about Stonehenge, we talk about the iconic balanced stones that we instantly recognise. A trilithon is three stones, and as the name would suggest, and in the case of Stonehenge, it is part of the monument that has two upright vertical stones supporting a horizontal lintel laying across the top. Now to clarify, these are not the stones thought to have been brought over from Wales. These stones are the sarsen stones, which we mentioned in the last podcast. Sarsen stones are sandstone and are very common in and around the area of Stonehenge, so it is believed that these particular stones were local which is just as well due to them being significantly larger than the blue stones. Another megalithic site which provides us with excellent examples of trilithons is the temple called Nydra on the Mediterranean island of Malta. We definitely believe that Malta was occupied at least as long ago as around 6000 BCE with the first stone temples being constructed from around 5000 BCE. Nydra is the most well-known of the Maltese megalithic sites and dates to around 3500 BCE, which is around the same time as the Neolithic constructions in Wiltshire, England, began on a notable scale. Nydra is one of the most awesome megalithic sites as it is somewhat elaborate and we can identify areas of purpose such as designated fireplaces. Mainly, Nydra was constructed using limestone including the trilophons to be found there. Those who constructed Nydra went to great efforts to dress the limestone that they were using, decorating the limestone with a great number of pit marks which give the temple a wonderful and unique look. Nydra contains three separate temples, which appear to have been built separately. 
The first one is the upper temple, which is believed to have been built first, with the middle and lower temple being built a few centuries afterwards. The lowest temple is the one that is particularly interesting to us in trying to understand megalithic culture. The temple has been built with an obvious regard for the sun and the solstices. The entrance to the temple is just wide enough to allow sunlight to enter the temple on each of the solstices. Therefore, during the equinoxes, which are the times of year directly in the middle of the solstices, sunlight travels directly through the entrance. So here we find ourselves back once again to this connection to the sun. The walls of the approach to the megalithic structure at Atlich Yam in modern Israel, pointing in the direction of the sun at the summer solstice. The men here at the Cromlech of Almendres in modern Portugal, in the direction of the winter solstice sunrise. The roof box above the entrance at Newgrange in the modern Republic of Ireland, sending a burst of sunlight down the passage to the central chamber at the winter solstice. There appears to be no doubt that regard for the activity of the sun is a fundamental part of megalith construction right the way across Europe and the Fertile Crescent. Neolithic Connections So let us go back and examine what the last six podcast episodes have shown us. There was a cultural revolution that began after the Younger Dryas, emerged initially in the Fertile Crescent and spread westwards across Europe. Fundamentally, it was a society which embraced agriculture and farming and became sedentary and built megaliths. Agriculture requires an understanding of the seasons to become successful at farming. The seasons are acknowledged by the megalithic sites and one of the biggest ritualistic aspects of human history which we have supposed is the acknowledgement of nature and animism. That is the respect of nature and the potential feeling among human societies that by offering something to nature that a successful yield is guaranteed. This relates right back to the Upper Paleolithic Europe and those shamanistic ideas that artwork relating to fertility and successful hunting was possibly viewed as a human necessity. The fact that we can see offerings made such as the grain vessels of Tel Saf in modern Israel and the pots of metal placed in the copper mines of Rudnaglava in modern Serbia suggest that sacrifices were believed to have been necessary for the gods of the earth to provide more yield. This may provide a conveniently good explanation as to why we see so many bones of humans and animals at so many of these sites. Maybe both humans and animals were sacrificed in order to guarantee successful yields for future seasons. 
Maybe Neolithic peoples believed that the more they worshipped nature by building and decorating elaborate megalithic constructions and by designing ornate ceramics and pottery and by sacrificing people and having highly ceremonial funerary rituals that humans would survive and outlive their rivals for resource. When standing at Stonehenge on the winter solstice, the sun disappears into a narrow gap behind the tallest trilithon. The winter solstice marks the shortest day in the calendar. When we say the shortest day, we mean the day of the year when we receive the least sunlight. On the 21st of December 2018, the sun will rise at Stonehenge at about 8.08am. The sun will set at 4.01pm. This means that the day length will be 7 hours and 53 minutes long. The rest of the 24 hours of the day will be night time. This is the shortest day length of any day of the year, which is why it is the winter solstice. The winter solstice would be a time where farming would have been at its most vulnerable. It would have also marked the time of year when fortune was changing, the start of days becoming longer and farming becoming more fruitful. So it was a time of hope. The heart of Neolithic Orkney. If we travel to the opposite end of the island of Great Britain, just off the north coast of modern Scotland, there are a group of islands called the Orkney Islands. If the winter solstice was a time of a dramatic extreme at Stonehenge, then it was even more dramatic at Orkney. On the Orkney Islands, the day length on the winter solstice is just 6 hours and 10 minutes long, over an hour and a half less than at Stonehenge. There is a terrific evidence of a megalithic, neolithic lifestyle taking place on the Orkney Islands and we believe that it is contemporary with those cultures living in and around Stonehenge and Avebury. The famous passage grave at Orkney is called Mazehow. It is a chambered stone cairn and is comparable to the Irish site of Newgrange, which we mentioned in the last podcast. On the winter solstice, the rear wall of the central chamber at Mazehow is illuminated by sunlight. The winter solstice was a significant factor for most megalithic constructions, regardless of location. Mays Howe may have been built around 2800 BCE, and it is not known who was buried there, but there is a possibility of a 12th century Norse raid on Mays Howe, removing any grave goods of value. The people who would have been most closely connected to Mays Howe would have been the people living on the Orkney Islands at the time. How do we know that there were people living on Orkney during the Neolithic? Well, we have evidence. Skara Bray 
is a cluster of houses believed to have been occupied in the first half of the 3rd millennium BCE. Scarabray is an excellent example of a Neolithic settlement. We are lucky that Scarabray was apparently covered by earth for many years until a storm in 1850 uncovered the mysterious stone settlement. It's worth mentioning some of the things we have discovered at Scarabray because although it is not a megalith we can still link it to other Neolithic dwellings that we have already discussed. The houses themselves were constructed within midden mounds using stone slabs so they are built in the landscape. Midden mounds are basically mounds of human refuse and we do find such mounds near many Neolithic settlements. The houses were very modern looking with box beds, hearths and storage cupboards that were built into the stonework of the house itself. So it was multifunctional as soon as it was built. Artifacts at Scarabray include tools, pottery and jewellery, demonstrating that typical Neolithic lifestyles had reached the limits of the European continent. There is very little evidence of weaponry, which demonstrates that this was probably quite a small and isolated community, and there really was no need for conflict, as the residents of Scarabray could probably live together quite peacefully. If we want to try and establish more about the Neolithic community of Orkney in respect to their megalithic ritual practices, then the best clues can be found at two sites relatively near to the Maze Howe Passage Grave. These two sites are the Standing Stones of Stenness and the Ring of Brodga. The Standing Stones of Stenness are a henge site, which means that a bank was constructed outside a ditch, enclosing an area of land. The Standing Stones are up to six metres tall, which points once again towards some major cumulative efforts to erect them. The stones were erected in a circular shape and surrounded an area which suggests ritual practice, not unlike those already discussed previously in the podcasts. Various bones, charcoal and pottery, all showing signs of being burnt within the circle of standing stones, suggest that sacrifice may have been taking place here. The Ring of Brodga is very similar, but it is thought to be slightly more modern than the Standing Stones of Stenness, dating nearer to the latter half of the 3rd millennium BCE. In and around the general area of the Ring of Brodga are various burial mounds, and further to this, in the surrounding area of all of these megalithic monuments on Orkney, are chambered tombs, barrows, cairns and mounds. Standing Stones We cannot talk about Standing Stones without looking at the Karnak Stones of Brittany in modern day France. If all the material of the last two podcasts were not astonishing enough, then the Karnak Stones are something else. It is believed that more than 3,000 prehistoric standing stones were erected in Brittany, 
with a popular date being around 3300 BCE. We are used to seeing standing stones in circular arrangements, but the Karnak stones were arranged into neat rows. Karnak is astonishing for the fact that it is the most dense collection of megaliths in one place, but it has a character all of its own, and the lack of similarity to other sites make it very hard to decode. With Stonehenge and the sites in and around Avebury, we can find many things in common with other sites. The henge arrangements of circular ditches and banks, the burial chambers and barrows, the cremated remains of humans and animals, and the circular megalithic stone monuments. I have seen some very far out work related to Karnak stones and how they're arranged. Some individuals have even sat down and plotted the stones and the gaps between the stones and lines that link alignments between groups of stones. Some have demonstrated that a line that links a group of these stones that are part of a group of a few thousand stones points in the direction of Stonehenge. But for me, this is a pretty wild claim. And although I cannot say that it is impossible, I feel sure that there could be a thousand and one equally convincing theories. The Karnak stones serve as a very sobering reminder of how little we know about the Neolithic societies that were obviously living on our lands only 5,000 years ago. There is no handbook accompanying these sites and scientists have tried to provide mainstream logic in some cases and pseudoscience in others to come up with a very wide array of explanations for our megalithic constructions. The real truth about megaliths is that the humans of today do not know the real truth about megaliths. The, the end, end of, of the, the megalithic, megalithic age. age. Going back to the British Isles, we can consider the height of Neolithic megalithic Britain to be the period between 3500 BCE and 2500 BCE. In around 2500 BCE, we consider Britain to have entered its Bronze Age and we see the emergence of beaker culture. It is very likely that beaker culture was something that brought advanced metalworking to the British Isles and triggering the Bronze Age. So what happened to Stonehenge during this period? Well, Stonehenge wasn't just ignored. It wasn't buried like Gobekli Tepe either. It still does seem that Stonehenge was considered to be very important. Stone circles were still being constructed in the latter half of the 3rd millennium BCE in the British Isles and megalithic constructions continued into the first half of the 2nd millennium BCE. The Stonehenge bluestones that are believed to have been originally transported from Wales are believed to have been rearranged. Some experts even suggest that more Bluestones were brought to the site from Wales during this period in the latter half of the 3rd millennium BCE. It appears 
that a three kilometre avenue was built between Stonehenge and the nearby River Avon, with particular attention to the direction of the sunrise at the summer solstice. It also appears that another nearby henge was built during the latter half of the 3rd millennium BCE, which is now called Woodhenge, and which was identified via a ring of post holes. Woodhenge is believed to have been next to a 3rd millennium BCE Neolithic settlement, which is called Durrington Walls, and Woodhenge is believed to have been still a site of activity as recently as 1800 BCE. It was in the time leading up to 1500 BCE that we believe some of the carvings on the stones at Stonehenge were created and that a lot of the area around Stonehenge was turned into farmland. We really start to lose any evidence of Stonehenge's significance after this date. It is also at around this time that we stop seeing construction of megalithic sites anywhere. There were no more stone circles constructed anywhere in Britain or France. This begs the question, what were people doing instead? Well, once again, we cannot be sure. There does appear to be a strange ritual practice that emerged in this area of the world sometime after the megalithic period. This practice is the ritual deposition of artefacts in watery locations. We are talking about hordes of weapons, ornaments, tools, jewels and jewellery, organic material and ceramics. We were certainly a very, very strange bunch of people. However, this goes back to the ritual of offerings being made to nature, with nature ultimately being in control of our survival and there being an underlying human fear of being a slave to nature's benevolence towards us. Conclusions We have devoted a lot of time to the megalithic culture. We have done this really because of the anthropological thread that ties human history together. We can explain what humans did and when they did it. We started farming plants and animals from the beginning of the Neolithic Revolution. And the reason why is the most likely that increased competition for limited resources forcing humans to protect what they could cultivate. We started building settlements at around the same time and the reason why is most likely because the necessary farming culture required us to protect our yield at all times, making it necessary to live alongside our yields. We started creating metal objects and artefacts and the reason why is possibly because nomadic traders were actively looking for attractive looking objects to trade for surplus supplies from these successful agricultural villages. High demand for such things became a strong reality during the Neolithic. We started building megalithic structures throughout the Neolithic period and the difference is that there is no obvious necessary reason to do this, unlike the emergence of agriculture, sedentary lifestyles 
and metallurgy. However, it is absolutely vital to our story of human history that this behaviour is discussed and analysed as it makes us think about and digest this strange and unexplained behaviour which is a part of who we are. Way back in episode one of the podcast, I made the quote that the reason I was starting the history of the world way back in prehistory is because it is the fact that we are human that has shaped the world we live in today. And in order to understand the world we live in today, we need to understand what makes us human. However, there is one thing about these megaliths that we have not considered too closely and we'll need to do so in order to understand the social changes that were taking place that would be vitally important to the cultures of the ancient world coming up in volume 2 of the podcast series. In order to construct these megaliths, it would have required the mutual cooperation of many individuals to successfully make it happen. Not only this, but all of these individuals must have believed in a common goal that was their driving force for creating these seemingly pointless monuments. It is likely that a fellow human would have been the one to make the seemingly pointless have a purpose that everyone believed in. This suggests the emergence of power, and it is likely that this kind of power would have been required to turn the early villages into significant towns and cities. And this is what we will be exploring in next week's podcast. So thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and indeed last week's. It was a megalithic marathon. We really got stuck into it and found out a lot of stuff, explored a lot of stuff and maybe learnt one or two things about Neolithic cultures that we maybe haven't thought about in the past. Thanks to all of you um, who are listening to the podcast, and um, I haven't been too active on social media. I've just been very, very busy lately, and it's been enough of a challenge for me to keep up with the podcast work, and I've even slipped back on the map creations and I like my map creations because it's really important that you have a visual aid for all of these things so that you can sort of tie it all together in your mind's eye so hopefully I'll catch up again with the map so I'll um, I'll try and put some effort into it. Of course uh, today the day that we've published the podcast which is the 11th of November 2018 a very significant historical day probably deserves a mention we're not even really in that period of history at all but it's the 100th anniversary of the end of the first world war something we here in britain we um we acknowledge um with uh, remembrance sunday it just so coincidentally happens that the 11th of november falls on a sunday this year so it all sort of uh, sinks quite nicely and um lest we forget and we will remember them um, all of the uh, British war heroes and then anyone who's been involved in warfare all around the world will um, will doff our cap to them and, um, and give them the necessary respect for the work that they've done for their respective nation. 
for me, it's not really about the politics. It's more about the human sacrifice. The fact that someone goes to war for a nation and sacrifices and lays down their own life and leaves a massive part of the, themselves as a person on that battlefield. They come home and they're just not the same person ever again. That is a huge sacrifice and that's what we respect. We don't respect warfare. We don't respect the politics. We respect the individual human sacrifice. Well, at long last, we're now showing a rating on uh, iTunes. Uh, Five-star rating, so I can't thank everyone enough for uh, providing that rating. It's a real strong um, thing to for us to demonstrate. Hopefully it'll attract more listeners, and uh, thank you very, very much. So we're really heading fast now uh, towards the Ancient Volume 2 of the History of the World podcast. The first volume of podcasts is coming to an end. We've only got a few more to do now. Next week, we're going to be looking at the first towns. Um, So we're really looking at how the first villages developed and became towns, organised, structured towns with many, many different facets. So we're going to be looking at that next week. Um, So thank you so much for listening. And we'll look forward to linking up again this time next week for some more History of the World. The History of the World podcast is hosted by Audioboom. It is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castbox, Podcast Republic, Stitcher and TuneIn. You can also find it on Deezer, Google Podcasts and Radio Public. Feel free to email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Join our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter.